Welcome to High Cheese. It's Friday, August 25th, 2023. So we just got the most famous picture in American history given to us yesterday. And think about that. And I've been thinking about what other pictures in American history conjure up the spirit of being American than Donald Trump's mugshot taken in Atlanta yesterday. Now, just off the top of my head, I think of a couple of pictures. One, we've got the photograph of Lincoln at Gettysburg. We've got the Iwo Jima picture where the soldiers were hoisting the flag on top of Mount Siribachi. We've got pictures, from the, uh, pictures of the man on the moon. We've got pictures of MLK in the National Mall when he made his I Have a Dream speech. But I can't think of a more important picture in American history right now. And it was given to us by the enemies of the American people, the deep state, the Democratic Party, the globalists that are going after you and me. And did you see the look in Donald Trump's eyes? He was resolute, determined, just like most Americans when they face adversity. And this is what made America great. It was facing down your enemy and winning. And just look at that picture. You can see how Trump became a billionaire. The determination, the power. The steel spine. This is what made America great. And this is what the deep state and the Democrats are trying to take down right now. Because they want to be in control. Not you, not me, them. If there's another picture uh, that is more famous, let me know. Email me. DarrenM3225 at gmail.com But I can't think of any other picture out there that is more famous than this one. And I just think how funny this is because this is pure blowback in their face. You have the media out there. You have the Democrats out there. It's all about the optics with them. It's not about reality. It's all about the optics. You've got to create a score story. It's not the truth, though. We as individuals, we as Americans, we want the truth, but not according to them. They run the government based on stories. We're now running our financial market based on stories. And ultimately, these stories collapse. And this is how out of touch these people are. They don't know the American people. All they think is that, oh, we're going to get a mugshot of Donald Trump, and then everything's going to be a disaster for them because the optics are terrible. But they don't understand the American people. It's in the American nature to push back, to fight when you're done wrong. And Donald Trump is being done wrong. We're being done wrong by this persecution of Donald Trump. And it's funny, they try to continue this narrative, and one of the narratives they're trying to create is that Donald Trump is not a friend of the black man. And I was watching Trump going to be booked in Atlanta, and this is what the mainstream media failed to cover. Along the streets were so many African Americans cheering Trump on. But you're not going to hear that from Joy Reid, you're not going to hear that from the Al Sharptons of the world. Joy Reid's out there saying, oh, it's It's so great that we now have a mugshot of a rich white man. Well, quite frankly, she's a racist. She doesn't like white people. And pray for her. But she's a racist. Pray for her. But this is the evil that is being pushed by the media, by the Democrats. And that's their story. That's their narrative. But the reality is there were tons of African Americans cheering Trump on along his route to the jail. But you're not going to see that on mainstream media. You're just going to hear this negative hyperbole about Trump, about his supporters. And all they wanted to do is get that picture. 
that picture is going to hurt Trump. I don't think so. It's called blowback. Your intentions are not working. And it's all about Trump voicing his opinion, voices, voicing his God-given right to free speech. And Fannie down in Atlanta wants to call him a gangster. They're using the RICO Act against Donald Trump. He's a gangster because he wanted to use his God-given American rights to push back on the cheating that was going on in Atlanta during 2020. And with that said, I want to go to a clip. And it's Donald Trump. It's right after he was booked, had his mugshot, and was heading back to New Jersey. And by the way, I hope he's on the golf course today. I'm not sure if he is. Bedminster is not far from where I live, and it's overcast today. It was raining today, but I hope he gets a couple of rounds in today. But anyway, let's go to the clip, and you'll see a man that is pursuing the truth. So let's go to the clip, and then we'll come back and discuss. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election. And I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to, otherwise you're going to have very dishonest elections. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference. So I want to thank you for being here. We did nothing wrong at all. And we have every right, every single right, to challenge an election that we think is dishonest, that we think it's very dishonest. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you uh, very soon. Thank you very much. And how ironic is it that one of the loudest Democrat election deniers is Stacey Abrams? who ran for governor of Georgia, and Atlanta's in Georgia. But with that said, let me go to a clip of Miss Abrams and her denying of the election. I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won. But I didn't lose. I got the votes. But we won't know exactly how many because of how they cheated. I did win my election. I just didn't get to have the job. We were robbed of an election. Just using the word rigged, using the word steal, do you think it's dangerous going into 2020? I, I don't, because we can actually back it up. And so in response to what I believe was a stolen election, I'm not saying they stole it from me, they stole it from the voters of the Back to someone outside asking if I'm ever going to concede. The answer is no. This is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. And I will not concede because the erosion of our democracy is not right. It was not a free and fair election. I think the election was stolen from the people of Georgia. I believe it was stolen from the voters. Thousands of Georgians had their voices stolen because they were not able to cast ballots. And they cannot be guaranteed that their votes will be counted in 2020 if we don't do this right. So was Abrams indicted? No. Because she's a Democrat. And she's part of our two-tiered system. And with that said, I want to go to a compilation some other Democrats that have denied elections. And this is a top-tier list of Democrats, so you know nothing's going to happen to them. 
And this includes Hillary Clinton, former President Jimmy Carter, current Vice President Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and a few others. So let's go to this compilation, and then we'll come back and discuss. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. How can you win with Russian interference, though? That's, That's a real what I'm thing. scared about no, in 2020. But, but rightly. Because right. I think he's an illegitimate president that didn't really win. So how do you, you know, fight against that in 2020? You are absolutely right. He's an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice president for Canada? <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election, and he was put into office because the Russians interfered. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election. I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be. And no perp work for them. And Americans see through this. They see the two-tier. And you get people in the media, well, this is different. The only thing that's different is that this is Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a threat to them. And they must at all costs go after him because we are a threat to them. Now, there's some good news. Jim Jordan is starting an investigation into this Atlanta indictment. And a couple of things he wants to know is whether Fannie coordinated with other AGs or the White House or other political operatives to drag out these investigations and turn them into indictments right around the election period. The other thing he wants to look at is uh, there were some rumors that she's fundraising off of this uh, Trump indictment. The other question he has, and I spoke about this my last uh, episode, is about what happened with this clerk? How did the clerk get her hands on Trump's indictment and release it before the grand jury even finished? And whether there was a phone call from Washington to Fannie, well, one of her operatives, that said they had to indict by Monday. Now, the other thing Jordan wants to look into is um, this whole Atlanta indictment was the result of a special grand jury that was convened a while ago. And special grand juries do not have the ability to indict, but what they can do is they can hand over their recommendation to Fannie and she can indict, which is what she did. Now, if you remember, the jury foreman of this special grand jury was a whack job. A nut. She was on CNN. She was in all these other media outlets. And she was clueless. And was Trump really getting a fair shake when you have a nut job as your jury foreman? So he's going to look into that too. Now, Fanny wants to start the trial sometime in October, but I don't think that's going to happen. There's a lot, uh, a lot to negotiate. Now, Trump's uh, attorneys are trying to get the trial moved out of Atlanta because essentially there's a nuance in the law that allows uh, a federal employee that is charged on the state level to move that case to federal court. And from what I hear, Trump's trying to get this case moved to West Virginia. So they take it out of the state court, move it to federal court, and in federal court, they'll move the, uh, the jury pool to West Virginia in the court case. So we shall see on that. Now, did I say that the American people see through this? 
This is what's so clear, and this is what they don't get. But again, they're desperate. They see the writing on the wall. They see Trump going up in the polls. They see him gaining support of the American people. They know they have a brain-dead candidate. And even as a group, they're not smart enough to take on Trump, so they have to take the lawfare route. They have to disrupt this campaign, try to put him in jail. So it shows their weakness. So we shall see. Okay, let's talk about some more corruption by Joe Biden. And it came out this week that Biden's decision to threaten to withhold USA to Ukraine unless they fired Viktor Shokin, the prosecutor that was going after Burisma, the company that hired Hunter Biden. Well, that whole threat to withhold money was not part of U.S. policy and apparently surprised some people behind the scenes. And let me go to an article here. And this is from the New York Post. And the headline says, Obama administration signed off on $1 billion for Ukraine that Joe Biden threatened to hold back. So it says here, former president of Barack Obama's State Department and several other administration officials were happy enough with Ukraine's former top prosecutors' anti-corruption efforts to sign off on their billion dollars in U.S. aid before a pressure campaign spearheaded by then Vice President Joe Biden forced him from office, documents show. The government memos obtained by Just the News, released on Monday, contradict the prevailing narrative put forward by Democrats arguing that Biden's threat in December 2015 to withhold U.S. loan guarantees for Ukraine in exchange for the ouster of Viktor Shokin, the prosecutor investigating Burisma. Several officials in the weeks before the Biden December 2015 visit to Kiev, had said they were impressed with the progress Shokin was making in the preceding months. One of the documents setting forth conditions for the loan, drafted one month before the vice president's trip, listed no issues with granting the funds and said nothing about firing the prosecutor. Reports of the threat to condition the loan guarantees also came as a surprise to U.S. officials in January 2016, as Biden's warning apparently leaked in the Ukrainian press. The memos show that Biden may have acted alone, and in fact counter to U.S. policy, when he told then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko to get rid of Shokin. An FBI whistleblower has alleged Biden pushed for Shokin's ouster because he was investigating gas company Burisma, where his son Hunter had an $80,000 a month seat on the board of directors, despite having no expertise in the business. So apparently the Obama administration had no problem with Victor Shokin, and everyone administratively had signed off on this billion-dollar aid package to Ukraine. But somewhere along the line, Joe Biden got involved, and he tried to put the gabosh unless they fired Shokin. And that surprised many in the administration. So this raises the question, at what point did Biden inject himself into this process? And is this a normal process for the vice president to inject himself into this kind of policy? So Biden's going to have to answer for this. And the question to ask, at what point did Biden get involved? So again, it's not another good week for Biden. Take a step back. Think about this. The U.S. government's policy was to move ahead with this loan for Ukraine. And suddenly the vice president comes in and tries to put the kibosh on it because he wants the prosecutor investigating Burisma, where his son works, 
fired. Boy, does that smell. But we shouldn't be surprised with Biden. So again, as I've said, there's plenty out there already to to impeach Biden. So we shall see. And I want to talk very little about the uh, Republican presidential debate that took place this week. And the reason I want to spend such little time on it, because they're insignificant. They won't become president, let alone get the nomination. And with the exception of Vivek Ramaswamy and maybe DeSantis, they're just full of rhinos and neocons, a group of people that supported policies that put America where it is today, wars, debts, the middle class getting beat up, the upper middle class getting beat up, open borders. And a couple of things I just wanted to point out. The first thing I wanted to point out is apparently last time I checked, there was 11, 12 million people that watched this debate. And let's put this into contrast of the nearly 250 million people that viewed Tucker Carlson's interview of Donald Trump that occurred at the same time as the debate. Now, you know, I'm sure some of those 250 million views were bots, maybe people that just perused the, uh, the interview. But even if you lop off 20% of that 250 million, it dwarfs the amount of people that watched the Republican debate. What does that tell us? Tell us that Donald Trump dominates the Republican Party. And we're not going to find a candidate from these debates. And quite frankly, I, you know, I think all of these candidates would just help themselves if they all dropped out and just supported Donald Trump, considering what he's going through right now and considering the support he has. So we shall see. Now, the BRICS economic bloc met this week. And what they did is they added two new members. And the current members are Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS. So they also added Saudi Arabia as well as the uh, UAE and a couple other countries too. Now, what the result of this is they now control half of the world's oil. And because of that, it's a, it creates direct competition to the United States dollar as the world's reserve currency. Because what happens is that oil is traded in dollars. So if, say, for example, India wants to buy oil, they have to convert their rupee into dollars in order to buy oil. And I'm simplifying everything. But what happens is that because they have to convert into the uh, U.S. dollar to buy oil, it creates more demand for the U.S. dollar, thus making it stronger. And ultimately, the BRICS, they want to create their own currency where they can trade oil in their own currency, their own unified currency. And that direct competition to the U.S. dollar will make the dollar weaker on the world stage, which isn't good for you and me. Now, you'll hear members of BRICS saying, oh, no, we don't want to dethrone the dollar. We don't want to challenge the dollar as the reserve currency for the world. No, they're misleading. That's what they want. A lot of these members have lost faith in the ability of the United States to run its own economy. They see $32, 34000000000000 trillion deficits only to go up to $50 trillion in the next few years. And they're losing faith in the U.S. dollar because they're losing faith in the U.S. economy. Now, there's other issues, too. There's this SWIFT system where uh, uh, international transactions pass through. And the SWIFT system uses the U.S. dollar. They want to create their own 
alternate system, SWIFT system, where they can make transactions with their own currency. Now, the other thing I also heard is they also want to create their own economic funds where they use their own currencies. Currently, they use the IMF. The IMF gives out a lot of loans to a lot of these countries, and it all transacts in the U.S. dollar. They want to stop that. They want to create their own economic funds where they use their own internal currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. Everything that makes the dollar strong, they want to repatriate to their own countries. And this isn't good for you and me. If we lose the dollar as the reserve currency, it's really bad. Now, one of the reasons that inflation isn't higher than it is is because the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And there's benefits to having the dollar as a world uh, reserve currency because it helps, it helps keep inflation down. And I just think if the dollar wasn't the reserve currency of the world right now, I'm thinking about Venezuela type of inflation. But this is happening. This is what is happening right now because of our own mismanagement of our own economy here. And the other thing they didn't like also is that one of the sanctions of Russia is that they took um, Russia out of the SWIFT system. They thought that uh, it would hurt Russia if uh, they couldn't internationally transact on the SWIFT system. And other countries of the world didn't like it because they said, oh, look, if they can do it to Russia, they can do it to us too, for whatever reason. So they want to create their own SWIFT system. And this isn't going to happen overnight, but the U.S. dollar as the world's reserves currency is slowly being chipped away at. And all the benefits of having the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency will be lost. And like I mentioned before, our internal inflation. If we weren't the reserve currency, our inflation would be tenfold higher. And this is not good. It should be a warning shot to the people in Washington, to our banks, our financial system, that we're not running our economy the way it should be. We're not worthy of having the reserve currency of the world. And this is a message to us. And again, like I said, I think, you know, they're saying, oh, no, we're not, we're not looking to be uh, in competition with the U.S. dollar. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And this isn't going to happen overnight, but. This is what these other countries are looking to do. So we shall see. So, they're trying to do it again. They're trying to bring back the old playbook from 2020 that was helpful to them in the presidential election. So there's been reports that the federal government is thinking about bringing back mask mandates. And this is in response to a new coronavirus that they found out there. New strain of the coronavirus. And they're doing their darndest to try to get people afraid again. And I think it's legitimate. And uh, the reason I think it's legitimate is because, let's take a look at Wall Street. And this is from CNBC, and this came out sometime this week. Headline says, Novavax shares surge after drug maker says new COVID vaccine was effective against the Eris variant. Let me read a little of the article. So shares of Novavax jumped more than 13% on Tuesday after the biotech company says its new COVID vaccine generated broad immune response against the now dominant Eris variant and another fast-spreading strain of the virus in small animal trials. The updated shot is designed to target Omicron subvariant XBB 1.5, which is slowly declining nationwide. But 
The trial results suggest that the shot may still be effective against newer COVID variants, gaining a greater foothold in the U.S. This includes ARIS and XBB 1.16.6, both of which are also descendants of Omicron. Novavax's vaccine and new shots from Pfizer and Moderna are expected to roll out in the U.S. within weeks, pending potential approvals from the U.S. FDA. Now, coincide this with an article that I read about Rutgers University. Now, Rutgers University is still requiring that students get vaxxed. After all this, after what we've learned, they're still requiring students to get vaxxed. So they're all trying to create this fear again because state governments want to use this to do blanket mail-in ballots, something that was really helpful to them in 2020, really helped them cheat. And they're looking to do it again. But quite frankly, I don't think it's going to work. I think people are on to it. And what we know is that the one Omicron subvariant, XBB 1.5, is slowly declining. And quite frankly, I just don't see them getting away with this. What the people know about vaccines, even the people that took vaccines, they know they've been duped. And they're not going to go through this again. But you know that the Democratic politicians are going to try to use fear again to try to get these blanket ballots mailed out. So keep your eye on this. Now, one thing I want to know is I'd like to really find out which members of Congress have bought stock in Novavax, Pfizer, and Moderna over the past several months and what they knew about what the plans were for the federal government regarding this. Let's take a look at Nancy Pelosi first. Let's see what she invested in. So keep your eyes out for this. They're so dumb. They're trying to go back to a playbook that won't work this time. But again, these aren't bright people, but they're going to try and they're going to try whatever they think works. But it won't work this time. And remember my last episode where I mentioned about the Canadian man that took a 1,400-mile trip from, I think, Winnipeg to Chicago in an electric Ford F-150? And it was a disaster. Charging stations didn't work. When they did work, they were slow. They didn't charge the full capacity. And he had to wind up towing the vehicle to a dealership and then renting a gas-powered car. And then he said something along the lines that uh, EVs are the worst idea ever. They're a disaster. So with that said, I want to go to an article, and this is from Zero Hedge. And the headline says, Ford CEO emits reality check when he took an electric F-150 truck on a road trip. Says Ford CEO Jim Farley admitted he underwent a reality check when he tried to make a cross-country road trip in an electric Ford F-150. Charging has been really challenging, Mr. Farley said in the video on X, formerly known as Twitter. It was a really good reality check of the challenges of what our customers go through and the importance of fast charging and what we're supposed to have to do to improve the charging experience. In California, Mr. Farley said he encountered slow charging times When using a low-speed charger, it took about 40 minutes for it to charge his electric F-150 to 40%. 
According to Ford, the company said it partnered with Tesla to allow Ford customers to use the more than 12,000 Tesla superchargers next year. Other electric vehicles also announced partnerships with Tesla. Long hauling in an electric truck is an act of pioneerism, not because it's hard and dangerous, but because it's a new way to experience America, Mr. Farley wrote. But here's my question for Jim Farley. You created a truck that people can't use. What kind of CEO are you? You build a truck, you sell them, but they can't charge it. They can't charge the vehicles. Wouldn't you think you would have checked if there were enough charging stations out there to satisfy your customers? But here's what happened. They, they rushed this. All this money that's been pumped out by the federal government, giving all these benefits to EV makers, EV buyers, Farley likely made a decision. I, I don't care. Just build the trucks, sell them. I don't care what happens afterwards. That's not a mark of a good CEO. And this is what happens when you throw so much money from the government at these industries. They don't know what to do with the money. They make bad decisions that hurt them and hurt their customer. And again, you can blame Biden on this as well as Farley because both of them suckered the F-150 buyer into thinking that, oh yeah, I can get it charged. It's all good. So with that said, thank you so much for listening. You have a good week and I will talk to you next Saturday.